If you would, make your way to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We have nothing less than this major goal for this morning, for you to see the resurrected Lord, not just to know about him and not just to know the story, but to see him and to be forever changed like they were on that first resurrection morning so long ago. I remember in 1998, I was in Kennett, Missouri, and we were doing a homecoming. And at that homecoming, they brought back one of the old original preachers. Uh, The church was established in 1911, but there was a guy who came in 1935 named C.W. Branham. He was actually from Monette, Arkansas, not far from here. He had a dry goods store, but he, he, he felt the call to preach, and so he sold that dry goods store, and he came to Kennett, Missouri to, to, to be the preacher there. And he served three different times for a total of 16 years, and he probably saved that church from those early struggles two or three times. They'd call him back when he'd moved away to get him through a difficult patch, and then he'd go off and he'd come back again. I didn't know all that back in 1998. I was a youth minister then, a young guy who looked at this old preacher and thought, there's there's a strange fella. He was a very formal man. He was an old man by then in his early 90s, and uh, it was difficult talking to him much, and so I just shook his hand and went on like it was no big deal. A few years later, we were celebrating our 100th year at Slice of Street, uh, 2011, And as I was putting together the story, there was a significant chapter that belonged to C.W. Branham because of the things that he had done over the years. Sacrificed a lot for the the sake of this church. And I began to appreciate what he had done, but by then he was long gone. It's a sad thing to meet someone and not really know and appreciate all they have done until after they're gone. It's like many of you can lament the grandparents that that everybody talks about what, what an incredible contribution they made to the family, but you were too young to know, and they died before you had a chance to really know who you were meeting. I met C.W. Branham, but I never really met him. I didn't get that advantage because I didn't know who he was when I actually met him. And there's lots of people who know about resurrection, but they haven't actually met the resurrected Lord. They had not come face to face with him to see who he really is and know that he changed everything. Matthew chapter, or Luke chapter 24, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They just assumed life was going to carry on just like it had, it had that previous Friday. A resurrection, an earth-changing, an eternity-altering event had taken place, but in their minds, life goes back just like it was on Friday come Sunday when they go to anoint that body. Nothing's changed. Everything goes like it has before. That's how many people are with the resurrected Lord. We, we, we celebrate Him on Sunday, right? But life goes back to normal on Monday and everything's the same. But I'm telling you, nothing's the same. If resurrection is real and you come to see the resurrected Lord, nothing is the same. Your daily life changes and so does the hope that you have. These women have the same view of life that they had the previous Friday and it should not be. And then they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they went, though, and they looked in, they did not find the body of Jesus. They were perplexed about this, and behold, two men stood in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why did you come to a tomb to find a living person? He's not here. He's risen. Remember, this is a reprimand. This is a he told you so. 
You know the tone, right? Should be a question mark at the end of verse 7. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, still living, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise? Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven who did not believe them. They thought they were with delirious with high fever. That's what the word idle talk means. These disciples didn't believe from them. Listen, they, they, they thought life was all the same. These women went thinking this is going to be a day like every other day. As sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. As the world turns, everything is the same as it was before. Nothing was the same as before. But they had to come face to face eventually with the resurrected Lord for this. But they haven't seen him yet. Things are still kind of in turmoil. They're hopeful, but they have not seen him yet. Peter runs to the tomb, but then he goes back home. He's perplexed too. Nobody's really seen him yet. And that's the problem. We hear it and we talk about it. We may even celebrate it as a holiday, but we haven't seen him yet. The scene changes. Two disciples, one unnamed, one Cleopas, going to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. So later on in the day, they're walking back home to Emmaus, talking over all the stuff that they've seen the previous days and the reports of these women. They're talking very lively. You can see an animated discussion between the two, trying to figure out what's all this mean. They had heard the reports of the women, didn't believe it, but almost scared not to. Suddenly, while they were walking along, a third person comes. A traveling companion joins the two. They're kept, that's what the word is, they're kept from seeing him. I don't know what happens, but God did something to obstruct a view because there's got to be something to prepare you to understand what you see. You see, if they'd just seen him immediately, it would have been like me seeing C.W. Branham in 1998. It would do no good. You don't have the categories of understanding of what this means. So he's got to put it in place for first. So Jesus comes walking alongside them. They do not recognize him, verse 16. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're having? And they stood still, look at, look at the verse 17, they were sad. Cleopas speaks and he says, are you the only person who doesn't know? That's ironic, isn't it? It's dripping irony because he's the only one who does know. What things have happened? And they said concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, how our chief priests, rulers, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, listen to the tone. But we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. He got our hopes up. He gave us meaning and significance. He gave us something to look forward to. He gave us something to live off of. And now it's all gone. It died with him. And our hopes are dashed. They're sad because they're hopeless. That's what happens before you know the resurrected Lord. This world is largely living a life without a resurrected Lord. They're hopeless. They're meaningless. They have no future. They've got to find all the meaning they can out of this life because it's all they can think about. But for us, it's different. May we see the resurrected Lord and may it change our minds and change our lives and give us hope and give us meaning and direction. That's my hope for today. But how, how does that happen? First act. The first way that you can come to see the resurrected Lord is by looking at your scriptures. You cannot come to Jesus in the water 
until you come to Jesus in the Word. You've got to be equipped to be able to see and understand what you are looking at. So what does Jesus do? Jesus reprimands them just like the angels reprimanded the women. Look at what he says in verse 25. And he said to these two disciples, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He had to prepare them to see by letting them understand this is no accident and this is no local recent breaking news. This has been forecast from the beginning. And if you don't know that, Jesus becomes some local guy who just comes on the scene randomly. Jesus is no local guy who came on the scene randomly. God's been preparing for him for centuries. But if you don't see that, you won't realize the significance. Number one reason, church, the number one support why we believe Jesus is everything he said he was is because of the prophecies fulfilled. Don't ever give those up. It's the most precious stuff we've got. Jesus, if I were to say... When you get to heaven one of these days and God says, I'm going to let you see four Bible events on video. I recorded it all while it was happening. I'm going to replay it and let you see it. What would be the event you would want to see? Creation is right up there somewhere. He speaks it and it just happens. But number one for me, I want to see what happened in that tomb on resurrection morning. I want to see that lying lifeless there, and suddenly, I don't know what it sounded like, but suddenly breath came back into his body, and he began breathing again. And Jesus came back from where he was. He was completely dead and powerless to do anything. And God, like he did with Adam, breathes into this body the breath of life and brings him right back. I want to see it. Nobody witnessed it. I want to see it. You want to see it? That's going to be number one, right? That's going to be number one. And the number one audio, if you could listen to anything from Scripture, what would number one audio be for you? No idea. For me, this sermon, Jesus preaches on that road. Beginning with Moses, through the prophets, he talks about how it was always been said Jesus was going to have to suffer and die. This was no recent event. I'd like to know what it was, and I can't. I think there's so many things probably even now people can't realize from the Old Testament this is about Jesus. But let me give you a few stops along the way. First stop has to be Genesis 3, it seems to me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring, or your offspring and her offspring. This is to the serpent. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is in the, the punishments for the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And right there in the middle of it, to the serpent, he says, one of the offspring of the women one of these days is going to, Satan, he's going to, you are going to rise up and you are going to bruise his heel. And he's going to turn around. How's he going to do that? After he's been bruised, how can he do anything? Because he's going to come back to life and he's going to come and he's going to crush Satan's head. Who was that offspring of a woman? It was the Messiah, and Jesus told them that on that road to Emmaus. Second stop, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And you think, what's that mean? The only way they could have fellowship was something had to die. 
I want you to know from the beginning there's this economy God has and it has nothing to do with your money. It has to do with blood. Sin has to be atoned for by blood. And what was their sin atoned for in the garden? This animal that gives up its life so that they could be clothed with its skin. This is a forecast that the only way that you can stand dressed before God as acceptable is for something to die. Something has to die. Next one. Genesis 22, you know the story, but before the story starts really, it's on the mountains of Moriah that Abraham takes his son and is willing with that knife to plunge it into his throat and kill him in obedience to God, and God stops him. But it's on the same mountain of Moriah, 2 Chronicles 3.1, that Solomon builds the temple. It's on the same mountains of Moriah years later, that temple that, that, that saw all those sacrifices that were made, shed of blood to give forgiveness to people. Those same mountains were the place where Jesus on Golgotha gave up his life for your sin. Do you think Jesus made a reference to this? I think it's possible. I can't prove it. Next one. Exodus 12, 13. You know the story. The death angel is going to come through Egypt and take all the firstborn, but there's exceptions. If you had blood on the door, the blood of the lamb on your door, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do you think Jesus said, I'm that Passover lamb? Jesus is being forecast even in that great redemptive moment in the Old Testament. Next one. Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves upon the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. All those sacrifices of Leviticus... It had to be an unblemished male sacrifice. That bloodshed was how your sins are forgiven. Guys, there's a theme that's forming over here. In order for our sins to be forever forgiven, some kind of precious blood is going to have to be sacrificed. The Old Testament is making it emphatic. And Jesus comes along and he is that blood. And he sheds it as a sinless, innocent Lamb of God. As when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Next one. Hosea 6.2, interesting line out of Hosea. You wouldn't even think. I don't know. I can't prove that this is forecasting it, but after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. That's an interesting line. Next one. Jesus himself in Matthew 12 says the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I'll be in the belly of the earth. Next line. Next one. Psalm 16.10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. We get into the Psalms now, the writings, the latter parts, and it's saying this is about Jesus. Peter said so in Acts 2. Next one. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, whom ate my who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Obviously about Judas. One, keep going. Next one. Psalm 22. Jesus says it from the cross. The entire psalm Sure sounds like Jesus. Next slide. Isaiah 53 is the richest. He was crushed for our iniquities. Not only was he crushed for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed, but it mentions in there that he will die for behalf of sins, but he will then again see the light of life and be satisfied. He will be brought back to life. And all this, this is surely Jesus. And in fact, the entire New Testament constantly goes to Isaiah 53 about this. Next slide. Keep going. A couple, I made reference to the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to see this. 
This is the gospel. When somebody asks you what is the gospel, you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. I want you to notice what he says, though. Notice the red, and I want you to say the red with me when we get there. For I have delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. It's not just that he died, y'all. It's not just that he was willing to suffer. He died in accordance with the plan God set in motion from before creation. It's the fact that God forecast this and made it come about. It's not just that he died. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day in what? In accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection was part of God's script from the beginning. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, he was offered or chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times. Before creation started, God knew the trouble we would cause. He also created a solution for us and it involved his own son coming and dying on our behalf and being raised again. I want you to know this is the sermon he preached to them on the road and these two guys who felt hopeless, they were sad, their, their, fa their faces were downcast and as they were walking along, they become... They become the hearers to this amazing sermon that I'm going to hear one day when I ask God to rewind it. I want to hear from the lips of Jesus, and they didn't even know it. And as they were walking along, these verses start putting some life into these two men. You can't tell it yet, because it's not the only thing. But church, I want you to know this. You cannot see the resurrected Lord without knowing your word. You've got to know the story and how God forecasts this all along. It's part of his plan. This is no accident. This is no plan P for dispensationalists. This is how God saw fit to save you from your sin. See it clearly. You must know the word. But then these two disciples are going to keep walking. They're going to keep walking. And Jesus, actually, they're going to stop. They're going to stop and go to their house. Jesus is going to keep walking. You see that in the text. And so Jesus looks like he's going to keep walking. Verse 28, they drew near the village in which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's already very late, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. He was their guest. But listen to what happens next. The guest becomes the host. The guest takes over the dinner. Notice what he says. When he was at table with them, he took the bread. He blessed it, he broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he had vanished from their sight. It was only in the supper. Now, you're going to sit there and say, this isn't the Lord's Supper, is it? Maybe not, maybe so. I know the fruit of the vine isn't mentioned here. I'm assuming it's there. I'm assuming this is a normal meal, but there's something about these two disciples, something deja vu, something rises up within them when they start looking at him and realizing he takes the bread as the host at a house where he should be guest, and he breaks it like that familiar vision of the, the meal before Passover, at Passover. And he takes this, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And suddenly, in the fellowship at the table with Jesus, their eyes are open, and they realize who he is. And I want you to know it may not be the Lord's Supper here. Don't get mad at me if you don't think it is. But I'm going to tell you that even an average ordinary meal in the Mediterranean world looks very much like what the Lord's Supper looked like in its original time. And I don't know that it was that, but I do know the same effect hits them when they realize this Jesus is hosting this meal. And I want you to know 
You want to see the resurrected Lord. One way is to know your word, but another way is to be around the table and watch believers participate in what we're about to participate in a few moments. As we gather around this table as people who acknowledge that the only hope any of us have for redemption is in the sacrifice we're commemorating and we're engaging our senses in it, our taste and our touch and our sounds and everything about this meal is to make us and remind us of the resurrected Lord. And those who can gather and partake are those who have already committed to that story. We've joined Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. Our resurrection joined his. We believe in it so much that we're willing to commit our lives to it and we gather around another week at this table and we look at the resurrected Lord real clearly because in that look we have our call of covenant for this week. The people who gather around this table are not just people who know the resurrection. It's people who've experienced it themselves. They've seen the resurrected Lord and we gather at this table to look at him again as he breaks the bread to us and be reminded of who we are. Nothing like it. But there's one last thing I want you to notice as the text racks up here. I want you to look at verse 35 in this story. It's interesting, isn't it? They told what had happened to the other believers and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It was in the breaking that they really saw him. But as the story continued, they could not just sit there the rest of the night. They got up at that very moment. And they did the seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem to meet with the other disciples. The disciples were staying up late that night. They were lighting the candles for light, and they were putting on the coffee because they were going to stay up all night. Peter had seen the resurrected Lord by now, and the women were there, and they were, they were recounting what they had seen with the angel. And others had seen the resurrected Lord by now, and so they put their stories together. They put the pieces together. No one can see the resurrected Lord alone like we can in community. It takes a fellowship to be able to see him as clearly as he wants to be seen. And we get together here on Sunday morning to share a notes and to, and to bear witness to each other, we all believe in the resurrection. And this morning, we are bearing witness to it. We have people here who haven't been here in a while. There's these kind of things that we, we, we attribute to the power of God, like Perry being here, and Wanda being cancer-free. And this morning, Winnie is wearing Veda's Easter dress from last year. We're bearing witness to resurrection. And while the world may not believe it any more than a holiday, we believe it with every fiber of our being, and it changes our lives. And we get together and look in each other's faces. And we have the Rickman family who just recently just commemorated a, a year ago that she had passed away, and they're still here on Sunday morning. Why? Because we believe in resurrection. We believe in it with everything, or we've got nothing. That's what we're saying to each other. You look in my face, I'm going to say to you, I believe in resurrection. And as you get older, listen, you might be 90, Eulalia uh, back there, I'm seeing she's over 90 years old. And you know what I can say to her? I can still say to her, the best is yet to come. At 90, yes, at 90, the best is yet to come. Don't ever lose hope and don't ever go back to life as it's normal. Like it has been all along. Life is not normal after the resurrection. We do not have the same hope that ever people have, which is none. We have something different to live for. And you know how you know that? You read it in the Word. You gather around the table. And you meet together in fellowship. 
And as we do, we remind each other and we see the resurrected Lord reminded of what we believe. This morning as these men now stand up, about to take the Lord's Supper, this is a little bit strange. This supper has a dual function this morning. For those of you who are believers, I want you to see very clearly that we, we serve a Savior who died for us, and he arose again, and I want you to see the resurrected Lord this morning. I want you to be reminded of what you've already done. You've already been resurrected with him through the waters of baptism, and you've got a resurrection coming ahead that's a physical resurrection into a spiritual reality. I want you to celebrate that today, but it's also, we're told, that this is a proclamation to the world. Yes, it's our only hope, but this is the world's only hope. And we long for them to be here and to hear us proclaim in this embodied form the resurrected Lord. If you're a believer, open your eyes and see him again. If you're not a believer, I want you to hear us saying it. And I want you to know we are proclaiming it. If you want hope and a real life and a real future, you must see the resurrection Lord, the resurrected Lord, and join him. I want you to hear it. This is our supper, believers. And for those of you who've never responded, this is your invitation. Listen to us proclaim the Lord's death. Father, we come before you grateful, grateful for what this means, grateful for this morning, where we celebrate and remember the story that it forms the basis of our hope. We know what happened on that Friday so long ago, that your son was willing as a sinless sacrifice to offer up his body for us and his blood. And as we remember that body, particular right now, as we partake of this, of this unleavened bread, Father, help us to remember what it means. It's his body, but it's also our covenant, our covenant to remove worldliness out of our lives and to be as holy as we can be for you. We know what Jesus did. And we proclaim it loudly now and pray that you are pleased with how we remember and that you use this to touch the hearts of people who maybe have never seen it before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, <clears throat> you've been brought into the fellowship of believers who have committed their lives to the resurrection. You have been brought to the Word and heard what it has to say about the reality and the hope and everything riding on this resurrection of Jesus. And you've been brought to the table. Those are the things that caused those early witnesses to that resurrection to believe he really was raised from the dead. The next scene in Luke 24 has Jesus finally appearing to them all right there. One of these days, we're going to see the Lord face to face. But until then, the way we see him is in the word, around the table, and in our fellowship. We've done everything we could this morning to help you see the resurrected Lord like the scripture wants us to. 
And maybe there's someone who for the first time you, you realize what actually happened on that day and why it happened and the significance of it. Maybe there's someone here who says, you know, I now believe that. I know I need to join with that story by being buried in the waters of baptism and rising to walk a new life and experiencing my own united with his. I can't think of a better reason, a better way to celebrate a holiday commemoration like this one than to see another person rising with the Lord. If you are subject to the invitation, everything that you need to know has been shared. Now have you seen him? And are you willing to join him as we stand and sing to invite you?